Hello and welcome to the December 2017 Immigration Update podcast on free movement. My name is Colin Yeo. This month I'm going to be covering a few changes to the immigration rules, the latest Brexit developments and a trio of decisions on deportation. I'm mentioning a couple of cases at the Court of Justice and the Europe of the European Union, one judgment and one referral, and then finishing on some of the other case law we've covered on the blog in December, including an interesting Supreme Court decision on deprivation of citizenship. If you're interested in um, picking up CPD points for listening to this podcast, then please head to www.freemovement.org.uk slash training. Right, turning to the rules first. Um, Statement of Changes in the Immigration Rules HC309 was laid on the 7th of December 2017, uh, mainly coming into force on the 11th of January 2018. And um, there's several changes. I, I can't go through the whole lot because it's it's quite um, it, it, it's quite a lengthy update. But picking out some of the sort of more important bits, um, there's some changes to the way that absences are calculated for PBS dependents, and this could be very important for some people. Um, in particular, basically the 180-day absence rule is basically now being applied to family members. Um, for people who've been um, who, who've been granted leave following an application made after the 11th of January 2018, and in the past that wasn't the case, so um, that's quite a significant change. It used to be only the main applicants who had the 180-day absence rule applied to them. Um, we've also um, seen something interesting, which we haven't really um, seen come to uh, sort of fruition yet, but. Um, Electronic entry clearance is heralded by this set of rules. It'll be interesting to see um, what group of applicants this is tested on. But basically, um, the idea is that entry clearance can be issued in electronic form, doesn't need to be presented to an immigration officer, who instead will be able to check it electronically. So it won't actually be physically in the passport. Um, Slight change to the visitor rules for those entering on a standard or uh, marriage civil partnership visit visa. They previously would have had to obtain a separate transit visa if they wanted to transit the UK, but from the 11th of January they'll be allowed to transit the UK without the need to obtain a separate transit visa. Um, We also saw that immigration bail was um, flagged up in the um, Statement of Changes and indeed that did come into force um, in January 2018. Um, tier 1 Exceptional Talent was expanded, and the, double, the, num- the, the number of visas was doubled from 1,000 to 2,000, although it has to be said that being as the previous limit was never actually hit, um, increasing the limit isn't necessarily uh, a terribly useful thing to do. Um, but the way that they, these new additional places were going to be allocated was also changed, and there were also changes to try and make it a more attractive visa so that um, Exceptional Talent visa holders, but not Exceptional Promise visa, visa holders, would be able to qualify for ILR after only three years rather than five. Um, there were some significant changes to the Tier 1 Entrepreneur Rules. Now, the Home Office claimed that these have just been rewritten to make them clearer and easier to follow, and that the actual substance is unchanged. But it, it's if, if you're dealing with any Tier 1 Entrepreneur cases, then it's very important to pick through um, what, what, what the rules now say on these, because they have been significantly updated. Um, Tier 2 was also um, the subject of a few tweaks and changes, so applicants switching from Tier 4 to Tier 2 can apply as soon as they've completed their courses, rather than only after they've received their final results, which is a very welcome change for those who are affected. Um, There were some tweaks to the resident labour market test for posts held by research applicants and so on, and... um, there's an interesting change with, you know, I'll forgive you if you don't know exactly which paragraph this is when I when I, I tell you what the number is, but it's paragraph 245, capital A, capital A, capital A, um, subparagraph B, 
um, has been deleted. Now, this was the paragraph that basically meant that anybody who had a gap of 60 days or more between employment under Tier 2 couldn't qualify for ILR. They could get an extension, but only up to a maximum of six years. So the deletion of that paragraph is, is very welcome news for those who are affected. There probably aren't that many people who are affected, but it, it, it's nevertheless a, a very useful change for those who, um, who are affected by it. There were some other changes to students and also to um, a few other bits of the rules, as I mentioned at the start, but um, I'm not going to pick through any of the other specific bits. I'm now going to move on to some of the Brexit and EU related news. So we um, in December had the text of the deal between the EU and the UK and the idea of settled status being agreed and we've taken an in-depth look at that on the on the blog. I'm not going to be able to go through the, the whole thing now but essentially the um, agreement is that anybody who has been lawfully resident, um, any EU citizen or family member who has been lawfully resident in the UK for five years will qualify for settled status and um, the Home Office is waiving the requirement for comprehensive sickness insurance for those who were supposed to have had it in the view of the Home Office. So that would be people who are self-sufficient and also students. Um, so that means that um, people who are in the UK lawfully will be entitled to apply for this settled status. Now, early on in the process um, the negotiations, the Home Office had referred to settled status as being ILR. I gather that's not necessarily the case and it might actually be genuinely some sort of bespoke status, um, but the details of that haven't yet been announced. For EU citizens and their family members who enter the UK and haven't got five years of residence, and they enter the UK before the Brexit date in March 2019, um, or who simply haven't acquired the five years of residence by 29th of March 2019, they won't immediately qualify for settled status, but they will after five years of residence. And to get them to the five years, they can apply for uh, a temporary status. So um, they're also covered by the deal as well. Um, there are provision for family members and pre-existing family members will be able to enter in future. Uh, new family members after Brexit will not necessarily. This prompts me to say that this is dependent a little bit on what happens with the um, transitional deal. So this is assuming that the UK leaves the EU and the EU law ceases to apply on the date of Brexit, 29th of March 2019. We're still not completely sure that that's going to be the case. Now, it, it seems at this point very likely that Brexit will occur, but the UK and EU are, as I'm speaking, they're sort of, it's still in negotiations about what the transitional deal might be. And it may be that EU law continues to apply um, beyond 2019. We, we, we don't really know. That does seem a bit unlikely, frankly, with the way that um, the political debate is going in the UK. But, um, but we'll have to wait and see what that deal says. The fly in the ointment for this settled status is generally speaking very good news. So most people will be able to... Um, secure their position in the UK if they want to. The problem is though that they have to make an application. Now the way that EU law works is that it, it's automatic and as long as you're exercising your treaty rights, you've got a job or something like that, or you're just an EU citizen in the UK without claiming public funds, you've automatically got the right to be here whether or not you've got a bit of paper in your passport or, or, or a residence card or, or whatever. Under this arrangement, all EU citizens and their family members will have to proactively apply for settled status. They'll have a two-year period to do so, the UK is saying, and if they don't, they become illegal, and then they become subject to the hostile environment measures such as bank accounts being closed down, illegal to drive, illegal to rent accommodation, and, uh, and so on. 
Now, we're not quite sure how many people aren't going to apply, um, but the problem is that it's expected that there will be a significant number. Now, it might be a relatively low percentage, could be, say, 10%. That would be a very good outcome in terms of um, a high number of people actually regularising their position before the deadline. 90% would actually be a very high number in comparison to um, international schemes in, in other countries which have been sort of similar to this one. Um, but that still leaves an awful lot of people who might well end up being um, unlawfully resident after the deadline passes. And this could be young people, it could be old people, it could be disorganised people, it could be people whose English isn't, a second, isn't their first language. It could be people who feel that they don't have the paperwork that's required in order to prove that they've been here for five years and so on. So there could potentially be quite a few people who are caught out by this deal, as generous as it may first seem. Now, if you've got any other questions about um, the way that settled status is going to work, we've covered that in some depth in the blog. So do take a look at the blog post by Chris Dezira dated the 11th of December 2019. And there's also another blog post we've done since then on um, what we know so far about the application process for settled status. On that, before I move on, let me just say that the um, there is an advantage, we're saying, to applying for permanent residence now if you qualify, which is that it will be um, converted in settled status on application um, later on and and you know, at the same time that three million people are applying for settled status um, it might be advantageous to have permanent residence at that point so that um, the application is uh, an even more straightforward one. Okay I'm going to move on now to some further EU law news and this is an interesting case called Garekis um, 2017 EWHC 3298 admin. So this is a High Court case and essentially the Home Office policy on removal of EU rough sleepers was found by a judge to be unlawful. And essentially since 2016 the Home Office has been targeting mainly Eastern Europeans found sleeping on the streets and accusing them of misusing their EU free movement rights and then basically removing them from the UK. Now a lot of people have been saying that this policy was basically unlawful and that these people weren't necessarily doing anything wrong. They may well have a right of residence and this kind of systematic targeting was it was in breach of EU law. And essentially those arguments were upheld. The um, Home Office has had to update its policies to remove referen the references to rough sleeping. So it, it, good outcome for those who are bringing the case, good outcome for homeless EU nationals who are being targeted under this policy. But it's an interesting indication of how the Home Office um, has breached EU law in the past, how they've been trying to push the boundaries of um, EU law, and it underlines the importance of having the European Court of, of Justice as a sort of supervisory jurisdiction um, to make sure that the uh, the UK government does stick genuinely to what EU law says as opposed to what the UK thinks EU law says or what the UK would like EU law to say perhaps. On the subject of removals, moving on now from um, EU stuff, this is a case called AT and Others against Secretary of State for the Home Department 2017 EWHC 2714 admin. Now this um, the title of this blog post is basic procedural fairness applies even when removal windows are used. Now a removal window is uh, an innovation that's been around for about a um, year, year and a half I think from the Home Office where instead of giving people a removal date they now start giving them what they call a removal window which is a three-month period during which at any point the person might be removed which obviously creates a, a huge amount of uncertainty for that person but it also makes it very hard for them to access legal advice because they'll be given repeat notice of a, of a removal window of three months 
and they've got no idea whether they're actually going to be removed or not. And this was what happened in this case of AT. So he was without legal representation. Um, he hadn't informed the Home Office of a genuine relationship that he was in and a child um, that had been born through that relationship. So he had a, a decent human rights case for remaining in the UK. Um, but the fact that he was detained and given basically one day of real notice before he was removed meant that he wasn't realistically able to bring a challenge and the court held that that was a breach of procedural fairness. Um, he, this, this, this person was actually removed um, but um, had to be brought back to the UK as a consequence. Moving on to another case, this is the case of R. Decker against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2017 EWCA Civ 1752 and it's another cause of appeal case where uh, essentially, the, the Secretary of State and the tribunals, um, the, the first tier and upper tribunals, have been found not to have been um, properly applying EU law in a deportation case. The um, link to EU law was a, a slightly um, extended one because the person involved was a Sierra Leonean national. Um, he was facing deportation and he left and went to uh, left the UK and went to Ireland before the deportation order was um, signed and served on him. Um, he resided with his sister and then returned to the UK as an extended family member. And that was the link to EU law through Surinder Singh in, in reliance on his, um, on his sister, who was a British citizen. The deportation order was held by the Court of Appeal to be valid. It didn't matter that um, he'd left the country by the time that it was um, signed. And however, on, on more positively for, for the applicant in this case, the neither the Secretary of State nor the First Tier Tribunal nor the Upper Tribunal had referred explicitly to the correct test in EU law for deportation, which is that the personal conduct of the person concerned must represent a genuine, present and sufficiently serious threat affecting one of the fundamental interests of society. Now, the judge had made reference to things that could fall within that test um, or, or relevant considerations to that test, but never actually recited or applied the test. And the Court of Appeal held that that was an error of law and essentially sent it back to the upper tribunal for the correct test to be properly applied. Interesting case from Ireland. Now, this is a CJEU case, a Court of Justice of the European Union case called Guza, and it's against the, the Irish state, but it's important here in the UK as well because the UK has been applying the same approach. Now, the, um, the case concerns the entitlement of self-employed people to out-of-work benefits. And the, the problem arose because the, the way that the um, Free Movement Directive, Directive 2004-38EC, is phrased seems to give um, after uh, unemployment benefits rights only to the employed, not the self-employed. But And that was, that was held um, by the Court of Appeal to be um, the correct approach in about 2010 here in the UK. Um, the same issue arose in Ireland and a reference was made by the Irish Court to the um, CJEU and the CJEU has come back and said that um, actually the same approach has to be applied to the self-employed as well as the employed and therefore that the English Court of Appeal was wrong. So it, it, it's an interesting one. It overturns the earlier case of Tilanu against Secretary of State for Work and Pensions 2010 EWCA Civ 1397. It, it, just in passing, it's interesting. One of, one of the interesting points is that um, the phrasing in the directive in different languages has different um, implications. So whereas in English and French, it does seem to be a, an explicit reference to employment. In other language versions, there are more generic expressions used such as occupational activity, 
which certainly widen the, um, the the one's understanding of what might be meant by that that phrasing in the directive. So good result for the self-employed in that and um, of course quite important in the context of the gig economy and um, the number of people who are um, technically self-employed but um, actually have a quasi-employed relationship with various different um, tech startups and so on. A quick mention for a referral to the um, CJEU. This is a case called Bajratari and it's about the means of support for an EU national child uh, as uh, when assessing whether they are self-sufficient. And this is an issue that's been going round and round for years now since the case at Chen. And um, there have been, that the, the approach that the UK government and also the courts have taken is that the parents have to have some sort of independent right to work in order for their employed income to make the child self-sufficient. They cannot um, bootstrap themselves effectively by relying on the child's status in order to then derive a right to work from that uh, in order for the child to have to be self-sufficient. So that question has um, has been touched on by a number of CJU judgments. The CJU seems to have been saying that actually the source of money just doesn't matter, but um, that question has now been explicitly referred to the CJU, so it'll be interesting to see what happens when it comes back. Moving on now to Supreme Court decision that I mentioned earlier. This is about the difference between nullification of British citizenship and deprivation of British citizenship. Um, the case is High Sage against um, Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2017, UKSC 82. Nullification of citizenship means that you never had British citizenship at all in the first place, whereas deprivation of citizenship, you did have British citizenship up until the point that you were deprived of it. And that can have quite important implications for people, because, and, uh, and particularly really for their families, because if a person... If a family member becomes British, for example, a child, because the parent is British, but then the parent's British citizenship turns out to have been false and never to have actually existed, then what happens to the family member? And sometimes they can retain their British citizenship if it was granted under a route that could have been discretionary. Other times, unfortunately, they have to they have to lose it. So it, it's important from that point of view. It's also important from the point of view of remedies as well, because a deprivation decision carries a right of appeal, whereas a nullification decision doesn't. It can only be challenged by means of judicial review. There was a big argument basically about the circumstances where nullification applies and deprivation applies, and whether it's um, the, the extent to which a deception on identity meant that it should be dealt with as nullification or as deprivation. And the Secretary of State had argued that um, lying about core aspects of identity like date of birth, um, nationality, name, led to nullification. Whereas the applicants had been arguing that actually that's, that's a deprivation matter. And the Secretary of State had won at the first stage and also at the Court of Appeal and then um, changed their mind basically. The, the Home Office changed their mind and decided that the applicants had been right all along. And um, there's therefore an, effectively an agreed judgment from the Supreme Court because the Home Office was no longer fighting this case. Essentially, the difference is that uh, where somebody is using a completely false identity for a different real person, that is a nullification case. Whereas if somebody is um, using a false identity, or using making up characteristics of some sort, then that is a deprivation case. So that's quite an important um, development. There's an increasing number of nullification and deprivation cases and that means that um, people who uh, are accused of deception should have a right of appeal in most of those cases now. 
Another Court of Appeal case called Arsan against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2017 EWCA Civ 2009. Now, in this case, it was a TOEIC challenge. So this is the um, English language testing scandal, essentially. And somebody was bringing a case saying that they should have been entitled to an in-country remedy uh, against the accusation of deception in the use of their English language testing certificate and they shouldn't have been removed. So far all of these cases have failed and the tribunal and courts have um, both taken the line that an out-of-country remedy is the statutory remedy and is necessary in the circumstances. That was going to be re-evaluated in light of the Supreme Court decision in Chiarium Bindloss and the Court of Appeal changes its um, tune essentially and says that look these accusations of deception do require oral evidence and if there isn't adequate um, video link evidence available then it has to be an in-country remedy that's available where the person can actually give evidence whether that is by way of an appeal or by way of judicial review. So it's a really good outcome for those who are affected by that scandal and it certainly improves their access to justice in those cases. Right, yet another Court of Appeal decision, this one called Patel against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2017, EWCA Civ 2028. Now, this case concerns Zambrano carers and looks at whether the subsequent case of Chavez Vilches um, against Netherlands modifies the approach in Zambrano cases. Now, I think it would be fair to say that the facts in the cases that were brought in the Patel case weren't necessarily um, terribly strong and the Court of Appeal reaffirms that the the test in Zambrano cases is whether the child will be compelled to leave the United Kingdom. In the CJEU case of Chavez Vilches, the court had suggested that a more child-centered approach would need to be followed and there need to be an evaluation of the best interests of the child as well. The Court of Appeal is, seems very keen to narrow that down and to say that is not necessarily the right approach and really to distinguish um, the, the CJEU case and to continue to apply a very strict um, approach in Zambrano cases. So if, if you're dealing with those kind of cases that there are some arguments on this, the Court of Appeal seems rather unimpressed by them frankly, um, but you'll need to, to take a close look at that and, and consider whether it makes any difference. Um, yet another Court of Appeal case, this was a, a pretty busy month, and this is another important one as well. Anwar against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2017, EWCA Civ 2134. The basic point is a simple one to express, which is that the Home Office, if they want to impose a technical visa condition, like not being able to work or a restriction on working, then it's got to give people proper written notice of those conditions and it's not adequate to give a generic information leaflet and it's not adequate to have it set out in the rules. Now that's quite important because there are actually quite a lot of purported conditions that the Home Office thinks it has applied to people in various different situations, whether it's students or points-based system migrants of one sort or another, but there's no proper written notice ever been served on them and therefore it is not technically speaking a breach of visa conditions if people act in, in breach of those supposed purported conditions. That's, that's one thing, and that means that they wouldn't be, for example, committing a criminal offence, which, which it might be if you were in breach of visa conditions. However, if you, if you were to do that, um, it, you might not be making a, a breaching criminal law in some way, but you probably would be jeopardising any kind of extension of your leave, because if you haven't been complying with the terms of your leave, which is not quite the same as a visa condition, 
um, then you might well be in trouble when it comes to um, further applications and extensions. So quite an important decision and um, the, the full ramifications of that I think might take a little while to sort of trickle through but for example uh, it does mean that students who haven't been given proper notice of a restriction on their studies are entitled to study elsewhere um, as long as the uh, educational provider allows them to, to do so. An interesting case that we've um, picked up on and previously actually and then, and then have returned to, this is the case of Abdul Rahman Mohammed, who was who he was awarded a substantial sum of £78,500 by the High Court after being detained unlawfully. That, that was bad enough for the Home Office, but it transpired that there had been a Part 36 offer of £70,000 made by the lawyers acting for Mr Mohammed. They had beaten the Part 36 offer and therefore various different penalties, additional penalties um, on costs and compensation were to be imposed on the Home Office and the judge proceeds to do that. So it, it, the actual total award to the, um, the, the successful litigant was actually more than the £78,500 um, and also the lawyers were entitled to claim indemnity costs um, which aren't necessarily proportionate costs and it's where the uh, disputing party has to prove that the costs weren't reasonably incurred. So it's, it's an interesting um, example of the power of Part 36 and also the utility of using Part 36 offers in those kind of unlawful detention cases. Finally, I want to turn to two cases involving employment issues. The first of these is a case called Sadawi in the High Court, 2017 EWHC 3032 Admin. Now, this is a trafficking case, and essentially it involves a domestic worker who'd been brought to the United Kingdom, um, felt compelled to work um, in, in very harsh conditions uh, for extremely low pay um, because of economic necessity, essentially. He needed to feed his family, and he had no other way of... Um, achieving that. In this case the High Court takes really quite a narrow view of what's meant by exploitation and ultimately concludes that um, this, this behaviour didn't meet um, the definition of trafficking. So a slightly disappointing decision there. The final case raising um, employment issues is a slightly different one and it's, it's actually an employment um, appeal tribunal case. So this is Baker against Abelio, London Limited, 2017 UKEAT um, and it's 02501605010. Now we don't normally report employment um, tribunal cases but this one's quite an interesting one because it involved right to work checks and um, it's also gone up to the employment equivalent of the, the upper tribunal so it's a reported case it has um, some authority to it. In this case the employer had dismissed Mr Baker because he couldn't produce the documents that were required by the Home Office in order to exempt an employer from the employee liability scheme, essentially. However, the employer also accepted that the gentleman concerned, Mr Baker, did have a right to work and had either indefinite leave to remain or um, possibly the right of abode. It's not completely clear from the decision. In this case they dismissed him because of his failure to produce one of the documents on the Home Office list and that was upheld in the Employment Tribunal but um, overturned in the Employment Appeal Tribunal and essentially the, the tribunal holds that where somebody does actually have the right to work and the employer knows that then it's not reasonable to dismiss them and um, they do have grounds for claiming unfair dismissal in those circumstances. However, if the employer isn't sure that the person has the right to work or doesn't know that the person has the right to work, um, then they might be acting legitimately and fairly 
in dismissing them if they don't have the right documents. So it, it, it's not it, it's a good result for the person concerned probably, but it might have slightly limited application because in a lot of situations the employer genuinely won't be too sure whether the person does or doesn't have the right to work. Okay, that's it for this month. I hope that's been helpful and I'll be back next month. Goodbye.